Hey everyone and welcome to the Hack My Homestead podcast. This is Sean Mills and today is Monday, September 25th, 2023. And today we're going to do an intro to permaculture design. So you might say, well, what is permaculture? Permaculture stands for permanent agriculture. Uh, these days it's been modified a little bit to probably stand for permanent culture. Uh, but originally it stood for permanent agriculture. It was created by Bill Mollison and David Holmgren in the late 1970s. Mollison uh, was an ecologist from Australia, and David was one of his students at the time, and they developed these concepts and principles as a response to the environmental and sustainability challenges that they observed. In 78, they published their ideas in a book called Permaculture One, and later Permaculture Two, and later uh, the Permaculture Designer's Manual, which is kind of like the Bible of permaculture. Uh, the whole idea around permaculture is that it's holistic and it's a sustainable design system that integrates different aspects of ecology, agriculture, architecture, community planning, uh, even some psychology and the way that humans interact with each other. So, you know, currently, you'll, you're kind of two main guys that I hear about these days uh, that are the main permaculture practitioners are Jeff Lawton uh, out of Australia and Paul Wheaton over in Montana. <clears throat> and so today we're just going to talk about uh, some of the, the main tenets, uh, the prime directive, the ethics, and a few of the... Um, uh, a few of the principles of permaculture. And so I might turn this into a little bit of a series, uh, but let's start with the prime directive. So Bill Mollison said that the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. So this is the prime directive. You got to take responsibility for yourself. You have to take responsibility of your children. Uh, that means that you need to be taking care of yourself. You need to be um, reliant on yourself and not outside systems, systems that could break down. And it doesn't say that you're responsible for your parents. And it doesn't say that you're responsible for your friends and your cousins, your brothers and sisters, yourself and that of your children. And I think that's important because, you know, I, I'm the oldest of five sons and you, when you're the oldest, you seem to get a lot more responsibility kind of for the family hoisted on you. And maybe you don't get it hoisted on you. Maybe you just take it on. Maybe it's part of the psychology of being the oldest child. Especially for me, where my youngest or my next oldest brother is actually five years younger than I am. So by the time I had any brothers, I was old enough to understand the responsibility of being an older brother. Uh, and then I ended up having four um, brothers, and uh, eventually later on down the line, when my dad got remarried, I had a stepbrother. Uh, and he was actually older than I was, but by the time they got married, he was in his 30s, and I was, I think, about 20. Maybe I was in my, I'm pretty sure I was about 20 when they got married. So um, the point being is that I didn't have an older brother. I was the older brother. And you kind of have this thing where you're supposed to take care of your little brothers and you're supposed to take care of your parents. And while those are um, definitely good thoughts and, and good things to endeavor for, 
they're not your responsibility. And you can't, you see a, this a lot where people actually um, take on those extra responsibilities to the detriment of actually taking care of themselves and their children. And I've been guilty of that myself. Um, I won't go into any details, but I have been guilty of trying to help the family out and realizing that I was actually putting myself into a bad position by doing that. So that's the prime directive. And um, then you've got what's called the core ethics. And there's three core ethics, and those provide the foundation for how you practice permaculture. They're the fundamental guidelines for creating the sustainable and regenerative systems that align with both ecological and social considerations. So the first one is earth care. And, and there's a reason why these are in the order that they're in. <clears throat> so the idea for earth care is that you have to care for the earth and its ecosystems. Uh, this ethic recognizes that the well-being of the planet is responsible for the well-being of everything that lives on the planet, including us. And so the idea that we would have a permaculture design that doesn't take into um, account things that could potentially damage the earth would kind of be ridiculous, wouldn't it? So we look at the environment, you know, as humans, we are probably the most impactful animals on the planet in regards to how we interact with our environment. We can really mess things up. And so, and we can do it very thoughtfully. <laughs> so, <clears throat> you know, we do have a responsibility as an intelligent creature to look at what we're doing and make sure that the systems that we're implementing are actually caring for the earth. Now, I will say that in, for me personally, um, this can create a little bit of uh, analysis paralysis for, for me because I look at my property and the things that I want to do with my property and I come to these conclusions sometimes like, well, this is what I would like to do, but am I... Am I creating erosion by doing that? Or am I, you know, creating a problem that I haven't yet planned for uh, by doing that? Am I really exercising earth care by cutting all these trees down, for example, or by putting a soil in or trying to move water from one place on the property to another? And <clears throat> it's important to really understand how those things interact with, with nature, how your actions interact with nature, when you're thinking about how to put, you know, steps in process. And so here's a good example. Um, we have some trees in our front yard and we are, uh, excuse me, we are redesigning <clears throat> our um, solar array. And we've got about half of it in place right now. And we still have the other half to put in. Um, and part of putting that in mean, required us to drop some trees, okay? And a couple of them were pretty old, pretty big trees. And so you think, oh man, you know, I really hate taking down a tree that stood there and has grown. It's taken a hundred years or whatever to get to where it is right now. But then you also have to think about the fact that, okay, once I get that tree down, I have opened up an area for sunlight, which means I have opened up the opportunity for other understory plants to grow. Huh, I, well, all of a sudden have the yawns. Um, 
having some hollow roast right now to, to fix that. So anyways, um, you, you have to think about, um, how your, how those actions are creating other opportunities. So yes, we cut a big tree down, but what else did we do? Well, we're going to burn a portion of that wood for heat. Okay. Uh, because we're burning a portion of that wood for heat, we are not utilizing propane for heat. Uh, we are creating CO2, which is beneficial to the plants. We are eliminating the need for a petroleum-based heating product. We are taking something from our local ecosystem and using it on our local ecosystem instead of bringing in outside inputs, which require you know, gas and, and wear and tear on vehicles and things like that. Uh, we are opening up the understory, creating an opportunity to grow other things below that tree that the tree would have pr previously have shaded out. Uh, as I mentioned, we are opening up the um, sky to allow for a solar array, which means we don't have to do things like burn gas in a generator for electricity. And some people might say, oh, well, do you really need electricity? Yes, we do. And we're going to use it. And so since we're going to use it, can we implement a, um, a solar array that produces our energy for us? Or are we going to burn gas? Because those would be our options, running the generator. Another option would be to bring power in from the grid and we believe that buying and installing solar panels the right way is a less harmful impact to the earth than everything that would go along with having power run to our house and then utilizing grid power in the state of Tennessee uh, for that and, and I won't go into you know I'm not a climate change guy I just think that if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to look at my personal impacts to the environment, I think that that's a better way to do it. Now, I could be wrong, but that's what I think, and so that's what I'm going to do. Uh, but we're also going to mulch the limbs and, and branches from that tree. And so that mulch will now provide food for other insects, and it will provide uh, some compost for plants and other things that will grow. So yes, it sucks that we're cutting down this old tree, but as long as we're utilizing what that tree provides for us locally and eliminating a potential outside input and working that tree back into the environment, then I think that's a good example of earth care. And I'll tell you, some of these trees we actually plan to mill and use for, you know, use lumber for projects here on the homestead. Uh, which, again, reduces the need for outside input. Mo I, I would imagine that most of the lumber that I can go to Home Depot or Lowe's to pick up has probably been grown in the Pacific Northwest, and it's been milled, and it's been trucked all the way across the country to Tennessee uh, so that I can go to Home Depot and buy it. And so the idea that I can use lumber that's sourced right here on my property for projects on my property, I think is another example of earth care. 
The next one is caring for people. And the idea here is that we have to understand that the well-being of ourselves and of other people around us and our you know overall human ecosystem and the quality of life for the people uh, and the communities within that ecosystem are important. Um, it, under, it recognizes that for sustainable systems to thrive, they have to meet the needs of those people. That means physical needs, emotional needs, social needs, psychological needs. And the idea here is that we are not doing something that hurts our neighbor when we implement these systems on our own property. Okay. And so, you know, going back to kind of the, um, the power situation here, like we could get power lines run all the way up through the easement and all the way up to the house, but you know, that could potentially create other issues for our neighbors. Um, if we did that on poles, then that would be an additional right away that would have to be cleared and maintained. And so again, it's just one of those things where, we should stop and think about those impacts, not only to the people that live on our property, but surrounding properties when we're when we're doing things like that. If I'm if I'm going to bring cows onto my property, which we've been talking a bit recently about potentially adding a milk cow, uh, but if we're going to bring cows onto our property, we need to have the ability to a keep the cow on our property so that it doesn't cause damage to our neighbors' properties, and b deal with that animal's uh, waste streams so that we are not impacting our neighbor. Like we're at the top of the hill here. And as they say, shit flows downhill. So if we aren't taking care of the manure from the animal, uh, it can run downhill. And one of my neighbors actually has a pond. And so if, you know, and one cow is not going to create a big problem, but if we were had a bunch of cattle up here, um, and our runoff, our nutrient, rich runoff uh, was not being controlled and it was running all the way down there to uh, his pond, then I'm sure that he probably would not appreciate that. And it could cause problems at the pond itself. And then the third, uh, the third ethic is called fair share or fair share of resources or equitable, equitable share. There's a whole lot of that return of surplus. There's a bunch of different ways to think about that. But the idea is that we set limits on what we extract from the ecosystem and we think about what we give back. And the way that we give back, in my opinion, is one is 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 our decision, right? And so um, this means things like trying to create uh, sustainable systems that get better over time so that when I turn this farm over to my children or my grandchildren, that they have a better situation than I started with. Okay. Um, it means that when I have a bumper crop of tomatoes or a bumper crop of plums that I do things like reaching out to my neighbors and trying to share my surplus and my bounty with them. Um, if I have excess milk, uh, or excess cream or cheese or butter or whatever the case may be, uh, maybe trying to set up some sort of barter system where I'm actually reaching out to my neighbors and saying, Hey, and, and 
maybe it's a official barter system or maybe it's I take the things to the market so that I can share them and, and get some return, uh, some value return for that. Or maybe I just give it away knowing that in the future, um, my neighbor will, will most likely reciprocate. Okay. And, and this is the one that kind of can get squirrely uh, depending on kind of like the politics of the person that's thinking about the situation, right? Um, I think it's very clear that you, you own your surplus and you are allowed to do what you want with that surplus. And the permaculture ethic states that you are supposed to take that surplus and uh, return it to the benefit of the first two ethics. And then there's other people that say, no, you should give away uh, that you don't actually own your surplus, that your surplus should be distributed, you know, from what is that uh, saying from the from those that have to those that need. Right. And if that's my decision, then fine. But there are a lot of folks that, uh, you know, kind of anti-capitalist type folks that believe that I shouldn't even have a right to my surplus, that my surplus should become community property. And so I push back on that pretty hard. I think that if you want to practice communism, there's communist states out there that you can go practice communism in. Um, here in the United States, where we we actually value private property, uh, and we've created uh, somewhat of a capitalistic system, uh, and at least the example of somewhat of a capitalistic system that we can improve on uh, individually, I think that um, that we're allowed to do what we want with our surplus and the fair share ethic just kind of guides us into um, how we should be thinking about that. Okay. And so overall, you know, the idea with the ethics is that you're going to consider the impacts to earth, to people. And when you have surplus, you're going to reinvest that surplus some kind of way. Um, and I think that if you do that, I think even if you don't really know the, um, what we call it, if you don't know the principles of permaculture, but you know the ethics, you can probably still practice permaculture. Now, the principles help you do it more efficiently, more effectively, and it, it's a, it really guides you through, um, you know, the ways to implement the ethics, so to speak. But I think that you can practice permaculture without knowing any of the principles if you understand the ethics. Okay. When I was in the business world, you know, we used the term, you know, vision, mission, values uh, as the core tenets of the business. And so the idea there was that if I've got a 10,000 employee business that's spread out across multiple states and or countries, um, the only way that I can arrive at my destination is if I have all 10,000 of those employees, or at least the vast majority of them, uh, all rowing in the same direction, right? We used to, in our big meetings, we used to talk about if we've got a bunch of people rowing in a bunch of different directions, we don't actually ever get anywhere. But if we're all rowing in the same direction, then we're going to get where we, we want to go, okay? And so where we are going, that's the vision, right? Where we are going is the vision, uh, and I kind of look at that as the prime directive, right? Where we are going is taking responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. 
And then how we get there is the mission, right? So the vision is where we end up. The mission is how we get there. And so in, using the, the rowing analogy, uh, it would be the map, right? The route, the things that we utilize and, and the direction that we want to go, um, utilize, you know, utilizing an understanding of the other things that are happening around us and how we need to um, work with or, uh, you know, maybe even sometimes against the things that are happening around us in order to meet that goal, okay? Um, and that's kind of like the, um, the ethics, right? So we know what we want to be. We want to be a person that takes responsibility for ourselves. And we know, you know, the path that we're going to take, which is one that takes into account earth care, people care, and return of surplus or fair share. And... Uh, and then, you know, the values of an organization, those are like the, um, that's like the tool belt, right? It's the things that we're going to use and just as importantly, the things that we're not going to use to get to the place that we want to be. And when we, when everyone knows the tools that we're going to use and, and what we're not going to use, then that again, it, it makes it makes it really easy for me to go to California and visit an office that I have there and then go to Florida and then visit an office that I have there and know that everyone is kind of heading in the right direction and they're utilizing the right tools. So again, get back to the, um, what do you call it? Back to the, uh, to the analogy of the canoe, right? Um, and, and rowing to get to a, the right place, the idea is, well, we all need to know how a canoe works. And we all need to know um, how a paddle works, right? And we all need to know what direction um, we need to row in, right? So uh, the people on, the, on one side of the canoe row differently than the people on the other side. Uh, now the, the, the strategy is the same, but the application of the strategy is different. Um, and so to me, the value, the, the values of an organization are similar to the principles of permaculture. So let's talk about a couple principles. Um, the first principle of permaculture is observe and interact. Okay. And this is, I want to understand what's already happening on a property and I want to understand how when I interact with the property it responds okay and so looking at things like how animals move through the property or how water flows through the property or where the Sun comes from uh, what the wind does at different times of the year uh, understanding things like when do the leaves start falling from the trees? Um, you know, how if I take tree A down, how the other trees around it interact or, or respond to that. Um, temperature is another big thing. Um, you know, we haven't gotten all the way there yet, but my eventual plan for this property is that from the house, we have 
at least 12 different items that flower or change color or leaf out or something to correspond to all 12 months of the year. And the reason for that is that the plants are way smarter than we are when it comes to understanding the ecology of uh, you know, nature around them. And so if I know that a dogwood blooms in a certain you know, three-week period, uh, and I know that that's the same time that I should be starting my lettuce inside that I'm going to be transplanting outside once we're past the first frost or whatever the case may be. Uh, those are the kind of things that I want to do. I want to be able to stand on my front porch and get messages from nature uh, so that my observations align with the timeline. Okay. So again, observe and interact. That's the first principle. The second one is catch and store energy. And you have to understand that there's lots of different energy flows on a property. Uh, rainwater is, is an easy one that, that people think about a lot. Um, you know, energy efficient design of buildings or of the actual garden area itself. Um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, utilizing solar energy, we're catching visible light energy on the property and, uh, and, and converting that into power for us to use. Um, you know, doing things like identifying the different uh, compostable items that we have in excess on different parts of the year and utilizing those things to uh, create compost so that we are um, you know capturing and, and increasing that biological life within the soil and then utilizing that in other places um, so there's a lot of different energy opportunities and some of those can be destructive if we don't harness them properly. And, and water is a great one, right? So if I um, if I have a house, well, I typically want to keep water away from the foundation. Um, I want to capture the rainwater that comes off the roof. But I want to take that rainwater and put it where I want it, not necessarily create erosion. Because... If I am funneling a lot of different water streams into one area, I'm increasing the energy within that actual flow of water. And if I'm not taking into account that energy, um, it can be destructive. Okay, So that's a big one, and there's a lot of different facets to that catch and store energy. And then the next one is obtain a yield. Okay. And, and this means that when I invest a resource or time or energy into a system, that I get some sort of yield from it, okay? Um, and I want more than just the yield that I that's obvious, right? Okay, so if I'm growing sheep, then maybe I want to shear those sheep once a year. I want those sheep to provide lambs for me. I want the sheep to um, improve the soil in the pasture. Uh, I want the sheep to help manage the parasite load. Uh, there's a lot of different things that I can utilize sheep for, um, you know, in my system. 
you want to make sure that you're planting a diversity of crops. We're not monocropping. Uh, if we're monocropping, then we have to use more input than we get back. Uh, using guilds uh, so that we're using plants that are actually beneficial to each other uh, allows us to get multiple yields from that same area and potentially increase the yields of, of other plants that are planted together. We want to utilize vertical space. So uh, understanding the seven layers of a forest and one of those is a vining and, and one of those is an overstory and one of those is a root crop and understanding that in a given square foot I can grow a lot of different things if I utilize so those different layers and that different uh, the different things that grow at the different uh, you know levels of the forest um, making the animals work for me is a big one right so chickens lay eggs which is great um, but they also process food scraps uh, into eggs and into compost they can level an area that has been tilled um, speaking of tilling uh, you can use pigs to do the tilling for you instead of a, an actual tiller and uh, chickens can do things like pest control. Um, they can fertilize the soil. And so they can do a lot of things for us, but we have to plan those things. So imagine having a chicken run that surrounds a vegetable garden. And the fact that the chicken run surrounds the vegetable garden helps prevent uh, some pests from getting into the garden because as they try to cross that chicken barrier, the chickens murder them and they turn pests into eggs. And then at the end of the growing season, we've got all this uh, area, you know, that's got, you know, tomato vines or whatever plants in it. Uh, well, now I can take my chickens and turn them into the uh, garden area so that the fence before kept them out now it's going to keep them in and now they can go through and process all of that excess vegetation and fertilize the area and you know kind of scratch it and, and disturb the soil a bit uh, and then I can put them back in the run and I can cover those areas and they'll be ready to go for next year um, and, and if I do things like throw some chicken feed in those areas then the un uh you know the uneaten grain and feed and whatnot uh, actually becomes worm food so again there's a lot of different things that i can do when i'm incorporating animals other than the thing that i'm using the animal for okay uh using perennial plants is a big deal as well so i don't necessarily want to have a monocrop of per perennial plants but I know that it's easier for me to get a yield from a perennial plant because I only have to plant it once, okay? And, and if it's the right kind of plant, it gets better every year. Uh, and, and it helps with the uh, biology of the soil. Um, it helps because now I don't have to go in and plant an annual in that spot every year and disturb the soil in order to do that. Uh, so, so there's a lot of different things that I can do the, there to plan to uh, obtain a yield and so i think i'm going to cut it there for today 
Uh, I didn't want to go through all of the permaculture principles. I think the first three, though, are a really good one. And so, uh, so just as a review, we've got the three principles we covered today. Observe and interact, um, catch and store energy, and obtain a yield. And we've got the three ethics, which is earth care, people care, and uh, return of surplus or fair share. And we have the prime directive, which is we need to take responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. And I think that uh, I think that's a good place to start. Um, I think maybe tomorrow or later in the week, I will dig into some of the other permaculture principles and we can talk a little bit more about how to apply these different principles uh, as a design science. So thanks for joining me today. Uh, if you want to, uh, ha- if you want, if you have ideas for things for me to cover, uh, or you have questions or concerns, you can email me at sean s h a w n at hackmyhomestead.com. And if you would like to be added to the monthly uh, newsletter list, you can send me an email and request that. Um, if you have a troubleshooting problem or a full design that you would like to hire me for, you can go to hackmyhomestead.com. There are forms to fill out there. Um, I am pretty well booked through October, really the first couple weeks of November, Uh, but I will have some availability in late November and uh, into December uh, to work on design. So keep that in mind. If if you want me to do a design for you on a system that you're going to put in in two weeks, um, it's just not going to fit into my schedule. And so, um, so with that being said, oh, I did want to mention, I have, I am an affiliate for EMP shield. And so, uh, if you want to put some lightning protection or EMP protection, uh, devices on your vehicle or your RV or your solar array or your main, uh, distribution panel, uh, the nice thing about EMP Shield is that they have a $25,000 insurance policy. So if their device is installed correctly and does not protect your uh, system, uh, they will pay for that system to be replaced up to $25,000. And so uh, as someone who has recently lost some equipment from a direct lightning strike to a solar array, uh, I highly recommend them. And if you're uh, someone who thinks, you know, with all of this Russia and China back and forth, uh, there's at least some chance that, uh, you know, where I live, I could potentially be impacted by an EMP, um, then, you know, that's something that you can look at as well. So uh, my coupon code is HMHS for Hack My Homestead, HMHS. And uh, if you enter that code when you go to EMP Shield, uh, you will actually get $50 off each device that you order. So uh, I had a person that I'm working with on a design down in Chattanooga right now, and he ordered uh, two DC dual uh, string EMP Shields and one AC. Uh, So everything inside of his system is going to be protected, and he got $150 off. Uh, of buying those three things. So uh, with that being said, I'll wrap it up for today. Thank you guys for joining me and we'll talk to you next time.